there's a range of people who use the dark web for pretty nefarious purposes from child exploitation, terrorism, and my sort of area of specialty as well, which is the trading of illicit drugs. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to our podcast, where we'll be exploring the evolving use of the internet by terrorists and violent extremists, how this relates to real-world harms, and what's being done to disrupt this threat. This week, we're learning about the dark web. My guests are Dr. James Martin, a senior lecturer in criminology at Deakin University in Australia and an expert on the dark web, and Arthur Bradley, open source intelligence manager at Tech Against Terrorism. We'll discuss what the dark web actually is, what it's used for, and how it's being exploited by terrorist and violent extremists. Plus, we'll consider future threats relating to exploitation of the dark web, and whether this is an area the tech sector and government should be prioritizing. Firstly, what is the dark web? Here's Dr. James Martin. The dark web is an encrypted subset of the internet, and it's accessible by a special browser called a Tor browser, which, uh, you know, it's much like Internet Explorer or, or Google Chrome or any of the other browsers that we use, except that when you when you download and use this browser, it masks your computer's IP addresses, which is the unique locating uh, identification number that allows authorities to know who you are and where you're located. So as long as you're using the Tor browser correctly, authorities cannot couple that with your, your online activity with your offline identity. In terms of where the darknet uh, first started, it was developed in the early 2000s by U.S. Naval Intelligence. It was developed further by a nonprofit organization called the Tor Project, which still maintains the Tor network, the dark web today. The technology behind the dark web was created by the U.S. government to allow spies to exchange information completely anonymously. In the 1990s, the tech, known as Tor, was released into the public domain, and as James explains, it is now being used by a range of people. The people who use the dark web is basically anyone who wants to stay anonymous online. We need to be careful not to infer illegal or you know criminal activity just from from using the dark web. There are a range of legal usages, and you know indeed that was the sorts of things that was developed and it's continually maintained for now. So things like uh, well, in its original sense, you know, allowing communications between intelligence operatives located in distant parts of the world, but also for it's a really valuable resource for whistleblowers. Uh, so, you know, the New York Times, for example, has a dark web entry point where you know, whistleblowers from around the world can, can contact journalists. And it's also an important communications network for dissidents who are living under authoritarian regimes. Of course, there is a lot of illegal activity on the dark web as well. So there's a range of people who use the dark web for pretty nefarious purposes, and those range from child exploitation, various forms of, of terrorism and terrorism sort of activities, and my sort of area of specialty as well, which is the, the trading of illicit drugs. So now we have a better understanding of what the dark web is. Is it legal for anyone to just access? There are actually very few laws uh, regulating the dark web. Um, it's just a, an anonymous communications platform. So, you know, I think I think it's actually a lot of it's in the name. People think, oh, dark web, it sounds like this terrifying place. But a, a more accurate description would just be anonymous web. And so, you know, just like any other encryption technologies, there's no there's no special laws, at least in most Western countries, prohibiting access to it. Of course, if you do access it, 
uh, and then use it for illegal activities, then that's a different story altogether. As James highlights, it's important to remember the dark web isn't just used by criminals. Journalists, activists, and even researchers all use the dark web for legitimate and legal purposes. That being said, there are many ways in which the dark web is being exploited, including to sell illicit drugs via dark web crypto markets. The main way that illicit drug traders use uh, the dark web is via big darknet marketplaces or crypto markets, as we call them sometimes. And these are essentially like eBay style websites where you have buyers and sellers who come together in the one digital environment. An illicit drug trader would set up a seller page on this site with all the various products that they have for sale, the various prices that they are. And then if you're interested in purchasing from that seller, you just you know click on the, the, the crypto market main page. You've got different categories. So drugs are the biggest category of uh, illegal items that are sold on the dark web. And you can click down by, you know, various subcategories, cannabis, for example, MDMA, you know, they're the most popularly traded drugs on the dark web. And from there, you can see all the sellers who are registered on that site. uh, And you can filter them by the countries that they're located in the products that they sell. And of course, the really big one is the role all of the sellers are rent by their customers as well. So just like if you're using, you know, Google reviews or Uber or something like that, you know, so too do you have user rankings for for illicit drug traders, which is really critical actually, because it's those kind of indicators of trust that allow people who are operating in an illegal and anonymous environment where there's no recourse to law enforcement or you know any other, you know, small claims court or anything like that. It's those kind of mechanisms that help facilitate trust amongst people involved in illegal activity. Purchasing illicit drugs on the dark web is relatively safe, relative to, to street markets, that is. And the main reason for that is there's no possibility for violence to take place between participants. So, you know, unlike a, a conventional illicit drug exchange, there's no there's no Scarface moment that can take place, you know, where the guns come out. And so in terms of illicit drug trading, it is really a preferable alternative in many ways to the street illicit drugs trade. But of course, crypto markets are used for other things as well. Um, you know, the sale of stolen uh, identity documents is a big one, you know, that facilitates a range of crimes. So it's safe for the users, but it does facilitate a range of criminal activities that carry serious risks, uh, you know, for the broader world. Now, we can't talk about the dark web without mentioning cryptocurrencies. As James explains, digital currencies are an important facilitator of any type of trade on the dark web. So cryptocurrencies have been really essential to criminal activity facilitated on the dark web because the dark web enables encrypted communication. So you can send, host and receive information. You can have a website up all without without revealing your offline identity. But that by itself is not enough to enable trade, an illicit trade, which, of course, depends on not only the offering of some sort of goods or service, also the exchange of money. So the original crypto markets or the proto crypto markets that we saw, there was one called Farmer's Market, for example, which was kind of an early pre-runner to Silk Road, which was the first big large scale global crypto market. Uh, And they used to sell a range of illicit drugs that would be available there, but they facilitated those transactions through usual kind of wire transfers. So Western Union was the main one that they used. So as soon as the authorities identified this site, they were able to get in touch with Western Union. And very quickly, you know, all the people that were involved with the trade were were tracked down. 
things really changed with the development of Bitcoin in the late 2000s. And that's when we started to see these big large scale crypto markets start to emerge without getting into any of the technical details. um, But cryptocurrencies really function like kind of like an Internet version of cash. Um, and cash, you know, as anyone who studied any criminology will know, is, you know, is a criminal's best friend because it enables uh, transactions that, you know, as soon as they're taking place, then, then off you go. Uh, so there are different cryptocurrencies out there that have various privacy sort of profiles. Bitcoin used to be considered pretty untraceable, and that is now no longer the case. Bitcoin transfers, you know, there's, there's been a range of work that de-anonymized the uh, Bitcoin blockchain. And while these, again, are relatively resource intensive, if you're involved in serious types of crimes, so, you know, terrorism or high level drug trafficking, then they're the kinds of resources that law enforcement can throw can throw at you and uh, and and determine your offline identity. Other cryptocurrencies, things like Monero, for example, have much higher potential to be used to facilitate illicit transactions anonymously. And, you know, the, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing a trend towards the use of these sort of high privacy cryptocurrencies that are that are being used to facilitate various kinds of criminal activity. So are these crypto markets also being exploited by terrorists and violent extremists? Crypto markets can be exploited by terrorists. And in fact, we do have evidence of that occurring in the past. Uh, the 2016 lone wolf shooting in Munich was carried out by a weapon that was purchased on the dark web. And, you know, that speaks to, to the real sort of dangers that are prevalent there. The dark web trade in, in weapons isn't quite as big as a lot of people think it is. Unlike electronic products, so, you know, stolen identity documents, which are very easily traded in, in a digital environment, physical products are more difficult. Drugs are one thing, you know, because it's relatively easy to you know, smuggle a gram of cocaine, for example, in in a postage item, but it's much more difficult to to sell weapons, you know, particularly big sort of bulky metal weapons. And of course, the biggest market for illegal, well, for firearms in general is the United States. And most of, you know, most of them are legal there. So it's really only places like Europe, you know, Australia, you know, smaller, smaller countries that have, um, or s- smaller regions at least, that have, you know, much more restricted firearm access that you really run into those problems. Although, as we've heard, there's no real government regulation of the dark web, law enforcement agencies around the world do monitor it closely for illegal activity. Here in the UK, the government has a dedicated cybercrime unit which focuses on taking down serious crime rings and child pornography from the dark web. And in 2018, the then Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, launched a multi-million pound commitment to tackle those using the dark web illegally. Let's turn now to consider the extent to which the dark web is used by terrorist actors and for what purposes. I want to bring in Arthur Bradley, Open Source Intelligence Manager at Tech Against Terrorism, whose role involves monitoring the evolving use of the dark web by terrorists and violent extremists. So I think, first of all, there's a bit of a false impression that the dark web is a hotbed of terrorist content um, and also terrorist activity. There definitely is stuff going on there, but the reality is that this isn't really where the main threat lies. Why is that? I'd say basically there's better options out there. In terms of internal communication, the dark web isn't particularly usable in comparison to obviously the massive variety of end-to-end encrypted messaging apps and other services that are out there, including ones that are failing to effectively combat terrorist exploitation. These apps can be more easily downloaded to phones and have features like voice calls um, that basically make them more usable. 
um, more accessible and generally more attractive for terrorist actors. Dark Web also requires a certain level of specialist software and knowledge to access. And also dark web domains need to be kind of recorded. um, And generally, they're not memorable or searchable. In terms of external communication, obviously, terrorist propaganda only really works if it reaches a wide audience. The aim is to inflict fear or influence some kind of political change um, with their messaging. So really, terrorists are unlikely to achieve that on the dark web. They want their material to to appear in public forums and generally on like online platforms with a large user base. Likewise, with external communication, there's a whole host of other tools that terrorists might be able to use um, if they're wanting security online without using the dark web. So things like VPNs and also blockchain-based decentralized platforms. And you can also use the Tor browser to just access sites that are indexed on the surface web. So that kind of gives these actors anonymity um, without having to go on, on the Tor network itself. So essentially, in general, they don't really need to use the dark web whilst they have more mainstream and accessible platforms and services on which their uh, material can be shared. That being said, as Arthur explains, there are a number of ways in which the dark web is being exploited. First of all, you know, as I just said, we quite often see terrorists being advised by their kind of operational security outfits to use a Tor browser or other similar software as a way of protecting their own identity. So we call this a a circumventor. So it's a kind of tool uh, which terrorists can use to evade identification um, or evade the removal of their material online. So other circumventors are things like VPNs um, or web archiving tools. So by accessing content across the internet using the Tor browser, it basically just means it's much more difficult to be able to track their online footprint. Second main use case is essentially using the dark web as a repository of their propaganda and other material. Dark websites are seen as a more secure and stable alternative to sites on the surface web, um, which generally are more susceptible to removal. And then finally, and I think this is a really key use case, is uh, using dark websites to mirror material on the surface web. So it's kind of like used as a backup um, for for the surface websites. A lot of the dark web terrorist sites that we're aware of also have a surface web version. Um, And the same is true of other kind of extremist sites that have faced deplatforming on the surface web. I think out of the 200 or so terrorist domains that we're tracking, only about 10 of them are dark web sites. So that kind of gives you a kind of metric for the proportion of them that are on the dark web. As Arthur said, terrorists might use the dark web to mirror content, which also appears on the surface web. For example, the dark web hosts a fairly prominent Islamic State-affiliated website, which acts as a centralized index of IS websites and other resources across the internet. So all that site really is is a a list of links to other resources across the internet. That site has a conventional surface web version, but it has been taken down a few times over the past kind of year or so, for sure. And in response to that, they have created a couple of other versions completely identical versions of the site, but there's one on a kind of blockchain-based domain, and then there's a third one on the Tor network, so it's a .onion domain as well. It's difficult to know which one gets used the most, um, and actually they voluntarily abandoned the blockchain domain. But as I say, the really the one that they probably want to be using is the Surface Web one, because the domain is intuitive, it's memorable, and for people wanting to access that site and find those resources, it's much easier to do so on the Surface Web. It might appear in search results, unlike the Dark Web version. But for sure, the Dark Web one is 
is a kind of secure and stable alternative. And if if these users have the domain on record, um, then they'll be able to access it. So what about future threats emerging from the dark web? As we heard from Arthur, the dark web can be used by terrorists and violent extremists as a way of protecting their identity and making them harder to track. And James says there are other potential risks. Basically, any criminal activity that can be facilitated by online anonymizing technologies is already taking place on the dark web. So I think it's unlikely that we're going to see some sort of paradigm shifting criminal innovation taking taking place that's spurred purely because of uh, the existence of the dark web. Much more likely we're going to see a continuation or an expansion of existing illegal activities that are going on there. One example of that would be something like the sale of 3D printing guns um, and the the blueprints that are available for those. So unlike a a physical weapon, which sending it in the post is very difficult, you can purchase blueprints for sale of various 3D weapons on the dark web and they can just be transferred. Those files can be transferred to anyone. And as long as you've got a digital, uh, a 3D printer rather at home, then you you can just produce those weapons there. Of course, many of those blueprints are also available on the clear web as well. So But the dark web does provide an opportunity to acquire those sorts of things anonymously and outside of the scope of authorities. In terms of what authorities can do to crack down on crime on the dark web, there's relatively little they can do, again, that isn't already being done. Uh, There are various ways that you can de-anonymize traffic on the dark web, but it is difficult. It's resource intensive. And for people who are relatively tech savvy and know how to cover their tracks, it's difficult to do. But we have seen instances of that in the the past to track down, you know, big sort of illicit drug traders, for example. In terms of what governments and corporations might be able to do to fight things like terrorism and other sorts of crime that are facilitated on the dark web, the most effective thing is to tackle those things at their source. So, you know, having good, strong, well-funded criminal justice institutions and agencies and having relatively equitable societies, well-educated societies that are less susceptible to radicalism in the first place would be, would be the best options. So what can the tech sector and governments do to tackle terrorist use of the dark web, especially terrorist-operated websites? Yeah, so this is a really challenging one. I'd say that there are maybe three main avenues that the tech or government sectors could do uh, in this area. So first is actually removing the sites themselves. This is a tricky one. It generally, you know, in the, in the instances of at least reported operations to get sites taken down, they're usually achieved through user error on behalf of the um, site's administrators. So a couple of really prominent examples is uh, Silk Road. So it's a really kind of famous drugs market was identified by US authorities. They worked out who owned the site basically just because he had linked his own online persona to his real identity on a forum. So he just messed up. And I think that's how they managed to do it. Likewise, there was a really prominent CSAM website, so child sexual exploitation website in 2014. Again, the uh, kind of creator of that site slipped up and revealed his own IP address. But as I say, both of these cases involved quite a lot of resources and time on behalf of the authorities. So that's a really tricky one and obviously not really something necessary that the tech sector can can do. So other approaches in the meantime, you know, one is definitely URL sharing. It's not something that's going to remove the site at the root of it, but it will make those sites even more difficult to find and access. 
So tech companies can keep record of these kind of terrorist domains uh, and share them so that essentially those links can't be shared in the more public online spaces um, and make them even more difficult to find. Secondly is search engine delisting. Now, obviously, um, dark web domains generally don't appear in conventional search engine results, but there are dark web search engines as well. So those truly illegal terrorist sites could be, in theory, removed from those search engines. Um, Obviously, you need to get the operators of those search engines on board uh, in order to do that, though. But I'd say generally, uh, in terms of tackling the dark web, it's similar to the debate about end-to-end encryption. So any action that that should be taken against terrorist use of the dark web shouldn't undermine the rights of the wider kind of population of dark web users who are using it for legitimate purposes. Um, so, you know, journalists, activists, or civil rights advocates um, in repressive countries. As Arthur just explained, taking down websites from the dark web is one avenue law enforcement agencies can pursue. But how difficult is that in practice? James says with the right resources, it is possible, but it isn't necessarily a long-term solution. Without being a computer scientist, I can't speak exactly to, you know, to the various processes involved. But for the technologically adept and well-resourced law enforcement agencies out there, so agencies like the FBI, Europol, for example, they're, they're pretty well versed in taking down dark web, dark web sites of various kinds, including big crypto markets like Silk Road, uh, have all been uh, removed online. One of the problems with that, though, is you end up playing a bit of a game of whack-a-mole. Um, so, you know, you can take one dark website down, but without an accompanying investigation that identifies people's offline activities, all you're doing is creating a short-term disruption. Uh, and we've seen in the case of drug crypto markets, site takedowns have had next to no long-term effect on the proliferation of uh, the dark web illicit drugs trade. So, you know, it might be useful for, you know, smaller kinds of terrorist organizations, but for, for, for big criminal industries, it's not a particularly effective way of, of disrupting those trades. I asked Arthur whether tackling these dark web websites should be the priority for online counterterrorism practitioners or whether there are more pressing threats to consider. Terrorist-operated websites is obviously not a new phenomenon. Conventional websites is something that's existed since the early stages of the internet. But in the wider ecosystem of terrorist use of the internet, we've noticed that conventional websites are kind of becoming more prominent and the purpose that they serve is essentially to act as stable, accessible locations on the surface web for material that's being produced by these groups or networks. They pose a kind of particular threat because a large proportion of terrorist activity online these days is being forced into slightly more niche or private online spaces, such as on messaging apps, private groups, and and on, on platforms that generally the mainstream population might not be using. So terrorist websites appear in mainstream search engines. They can add a kind of veneer of professionalism. Often they're not actually built very well, but sometimes they are. And they can also actually just hold a really massive amount of content. Likewise, they can act as kind of entry points to those more private spaces that might be quite difficult to find. So we're focusing a large proportion of our efforts on tackling the threat of terrorist websites. There's definitely not consistency from infrastructure providers and also the wider kind of counterterrorism um, industry in tackling terrorist websites. Some do get taken down very regularly, but others can remain online for months or even years at a time. 
The increasing number of terrorist-operated websites, which are easily accessible on the surface web, is a topic we'll be returning to in a future episode. A huge thank you to Arthur Bradley and Dr. James Martin for their input in today's episode. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.